One, two, three, four. Who's in yard? Who's in yard? Far and gazebo. We will vanquish all our foes. Where are all the flowers gone? Who's in, who's in yard? Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> now we are ready to perform. And uh, this has been uh, billed, as you know, as a, uh, an evening of prose and uh, music. But So to be transgressive, I'm going to begin with a piece of verse. And uh, this is one of the uh, items from the, the Hooting Yard songbook, many of which pieces have been set to music by David, and he'll be performing some of them with his ukulele, or without his ukulele, in the first half of the show. But for the first one, I'm just going to read it to you. He came clutching an Alpenstock from the far Tyrol. He joined the Bader-Meinhof gang, along with Astrid Prol. He joined an English folk group and sang a foldy role. And no one ever realised that he was a wooden doll. His name was not Pinocchio, a different wooden boy. Our hero's name, quite weirdly, he shared with Myrna Loy, that siren of the silver screen who brought filmgoers such joy. Our Myrna was a terrorist folky, a simple wooden toy. Pinocchio's nose, you will recall, grew longer as he lied, but Myrna Loy's did not for he took truth as his guide. Well, he only did so after Ulrika Meinhof died, for on that day his revolutionary fervour was cast aside. He cast aside the folk group too. Hey, nonny, nonny, no. He met a man in a field, one man who went to mow. He lay down on the fresh-mown grass. He had nowhere else to go. And Myrna Loy when winter came, was buried under snow. He lay there until springtime, a wooden boy, frozen, dead, until he was found by urchins who carried him to a shed. They dismantled him piece by piece, the urchins, Lars and Ned, and then they had a game of football with his wooden head. So next time you go hiking in the fabled far Tyrol, say a prayer for Myrna Loy, the dismantled wooden doll. Yava Husita. Right, um, does anybody go to folk club regularly in here? No, I'm going to get where we murder. <laughs> I do go to folk clubs. So the first one I'm going to sing from the Hooting Yard songbook, it will be an unaccompanied rustic lesson. Right. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, uh, but we'll give it a go. And I'm going to ask you to clap along as well. So. Oh, the farmer's dancing round the back. He's back me as he bombing it. Around a branch of wobbling pitsings. We have chained the devil. Oh, we have chained the devil. The farmer's dancing in the muck. His belly's filled up with boiled cook. A chicken gives a warning click. The devil's loosed his chains. The devil's loosed his chains. 
The sky above is sudden black. The devil leaps on the farmer's back. He puts the farmer in his sack and he looks back into the pit. Oh, he looks back into the pit. The chicken cluck, the tit still swings and flaps its tiny frozen wings. Oh, mystics, you must learn these things. Don't try to chain the devil. Oh, don't try to chain the devil. That ducky ate, avenged its fate. It took bar shape, it had bar shape. Farmer learned that was too late. He'd dance no more around the pit. Oh, we'll dance no more around the pit. Thank you. <laughs> If you've ever spent a weekend with an owl god, you'll know that it can be a character-building experience. <laughs> I have vivid memories of the time Chalchiotecolotl, the night owl god of the Aztecs, made itself at home in my flat for three trying days. <laughs> I live in a glitzy and gleaming block of futuristic design, impossibly stark with lots of exciting remote-control hubs, but the fact is it's small, even pokey, and it doesn't help that I have crammed into it the contents of my mother's laboratory and my father's garden shed, together with a jumble of junk from a hellhole. <laughs> that Friday evening, I was crumpled on a settee, eating lemon meringue pie and reading Pebblehead's latest best-selling paperback, Brute Beauty and Valour and Act, Oh, Air, Pride, Plume, Here, Buckle! <laughs> when the front door sensor vibrated, the hub hummed and the plasma display flashed insistently. I had a visitor, though no one was expected. Thinking it might be a goon coming to serve me with an asbo, I depressed the locking knob on the entry pod, put down my pie plate and tiptoed my way through some of my mother's alembics to the door. Peering through the slat, I saw a hunched and somewhat shabby figure dressed like a bus conductor if you can remember bus conductors. He, I thought it was a he, was not holding anything that might be an asbo, so being an affable sort, I opened the door. He, or rather it, almost knocked me over as it somehow soared past me and came to rest next to the settee. Before either of us spoke, it plucked my plate off the floor and scoffed what was left of the lemon meringue pie. Then it said, Good evening. I am an Aztec god. My name is Chalchuotecolotl, and I am an owl god of the night. You look like a bus conductor, I replied, <laughs> and a shabby one at that. And then it screeched at me. It was the loudest and longest screech I have ever had the misfortune to hear. My ears didn't stop ringing until Sunday lunchtime, by which time the owl god had completely taken over my life. Within the confines of my fab but tiny flat, it swooped, it pecked at things, it shifted shape, it did some strange rewiring manipulations to my stereo, it fluttered and preened, it fixed me for hours with a cold, inhuman stare. It sprouted tufts and feathers. It wouldn't let me read my pebblehead paperback. It hawked up gobbets of semi-digested pie. It smashed all my mother's lab equipment to smithereens, then ate the smithereens. <laughs> it shifted shape again. It summoned some of its Aztec god pals and held a rowdy Saturday night party. 
It kept me awake by looming menacingly just out of sight. It filled the bath with wounded mice and stoats and weasels. It made me sit through a four-hour documentary about Spandau Ballet. <laughs> its metabolism speeded up to the point where everything in the flat was shaking. It phoned up my friends and told them I'd moved to Dawlish. <laughs> it somehow managed to drag a live swan into the bathroom and savaged it with its talons. It screeched and screeched, drowning out the shipping forecast. <laughs> it burned its bright incandescent fury into my soul. And on Monday morning, it shapeshifted again, just as it was pulverising my bread bin and turned back into what looked like a shabby bus conductor. I'm leaving you now, it said, and it sounded almost regretful. I watched it leave and slumped on what was left of my settee. I took a nap and then I went to see the priest to explain to him that I was now renouncing the Roman Catholic faith forever. He tried to lure me into the confessional box, but I threatened to tear his beating heart out of his chest and make an offering of it to that mighty orb, the sun. That shut him up. I sashayed off through the glittering streets, past Pang Hill Orphanage and across Sawdust Bridge towards glory. <laughs> by the shore. Cure my withered lower limbs and we'll 
float along in the boundless sky Eating a snack of lemon meringue pie <laughs> Then I'll be dumped back on the lane A few tweaks putting right my brain And then I shall return once more To the bright pavilion by the shore I'm sure there's one thing before I go that you are very keen to know The balloonist name Don't be a clot Was Tiny Enid The heroic tot In his song, Suzanne, Cohen tells us that there are heroes in the seaweed. Oh, really? I asked myself, not without a dash of scepticism. And what precisely would heroes be doing, disporting themselves in the sargassum and the kelp? Still, one doesn't wish to dismiss out of hand the words of a figure of such stature, so I summoned my sidekick and went to investigate. Out by the aerodrome, we boarded a charabank heading for the seashore, but not before arming ourselves each with a long and pointy stick. These, I explained to my somewhat dim sidekick, we would use to poke about the seaweed in search of heroes. <laughs> he seemed satisfied with this, but as the charabank gathered speed crossing the wild and windy moors, he babbled questions at me. Which particular heroes were they that were to be found in the seaweed? Heroes of ancient Greece, such as Heracles and Theseus and Jason and Bellerophon. Tragic heroes, such as Orestes and Oedipus and Hamlet. Byronic heroes, boys' own paper heroes, guitar heroes. Or modern-day superheroes, such as Batman and Spider-Man and Unconscious Squirrel the unconscious squirrel. <laughs> or would we find entangled in the seaweed representatives of all these types of heroes, and more? And were they trapped in the seaweed, struggling heroically to escape from it? Or had they made it their natural habitat, nesting in it, as it were, even perhaps feeding off it? I was fairly sure Cohen had not addressed these questions in his song, but to be on the safe side, I decided to listen to it again, pointing out of the Sharabank window at a flock of starlings to distract my sidekick's attention and shut him up. I jammed into my ears the tiny headphones of my eye Leonard and pressed play. Precisely three minutes and 49 seconds later, I removed the headphones and turned to my sidekick who was still staring out of the window, mouth open, dribbling, though the starlings had long since vanished, and the only bird visible in the sky was a lone lark. Or it might have been a swift, or even an avocet. I know nothing of all this. <laughs> Cohen does not expand upon his assertion, I said, so we shall have to poke about with our long pointy sticks and see what we shall see. First, though, I think we're both in need of refreshments, so we shall stop at the seaside kiosk for some tea and oranges that come all the way from China. My sidekick was happy with the suggestion, 
and he grinned. It's never a pretty sight, so I closed my eyes. <laughs> Earlier that day, I had climbed a whole mountainside to wash my eyelids in the rain, which had puffed me out something awful, and no sooner were my eyes shut than I fell into a snooze. When I woke, the shower bank was parked in a lay-by at the seashore. I was the only passenger still aboard. Even my sidekick had gone. I disembarked and made my way to the kiosk where I was sure I would, I would find him stuffing his gob with Chinese oranges. The kiosk was bolted and shuttered, but by following a trail of spilt tea and strips of Chinese orange peel, I soon tracked down my sidekick. He was squelching about in a tide pool, poking his long pointy stick into it. Have you speared any heroes? I called. No, he replied, just sculpins and killifish and blennies and yellow spongefish and sea stars and sea cucumbers and sea urchins and sand shrimps and lobsters and crabs and hermit crabs and green line shore crabs and barnacles and nudibranchs and chitons and mussels and scallops and abalones and limpets and snails. Oh, and a sea anemone. No sign at all of Ord Wingate or Captain James T. Kirk to pluck but two heroes at random? No. I went to sit on a slimy boulder. It occurred to me that heroes might be more likely to swim about in the open sea, festooned with seaweed like mermaids. We would have to hire a rowing boat to extend our quest. It also occurred to me that it would be cheaper and far less tiresome to conclude that Cohen had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Come, sidekick, I called. Throw away your long pointy stick and let us catch the sharabank home before darkness falls. And so we did, but we never reached home. For long before we reached the bus stop by the aerodrome, the sharabank driver killed the lights in a lonely lane and an ape with angel glands erased the final wisps of pain with the music of rubber bands. Followers of Frank's site will no doubt be aware one of the... So is he a, would you describe Glynn as a regular contributor? He's a... He's he writes to me quite often. He writes to you quite... He, um, you may know that I make cardboard signs. And Glyn actually asked me if I would create a cardboard sign to put out. And I couldn't think of anywhere to put it. So I'm letting you look at it now. It will be available for viewing <laughs> later on, should you want to look at it. But basically, the, the advice is quite good on here. Everyone else is doing it. It's an excellent reason for doing most things. So there you go. Advice from Lynn <laughs> Webster in New Zealand. The tiny-headed boy. The boy stood on the burning deck when somebody had fled. He was microcephalic. He had a tiny his hat was made of flowers and his coat was made of lead. He fixed his gaze upon the sea and this is 
what he said I am a tiny-headed boy Alone upon the ocean My head was of an average size Until I drank a potion I drank from a pot I found on a shelf upon the poop A potion recommended on Gwyneth Paltrow's website Goop Melted snow, all heated on the burning poop deck till they are aglow. And when it's hot, you gulp it down and you say a little prayer. Oh, burning ship, oh, boundless sea, oh, solid liquid air. And soon enough, you'll find your head will shrink until it's tiny. And you stand aboard the burning ship and sail across the briny. The boy stood on the ship in flames and resolved to say no more. He fixed his gaze upon the sea until he came in sight of shore. And like the potion he had gulped, his spirits were now aglow ahead of him. Lay the coast of the land of Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> and like the potion he had gulped, his spirits were now aglow. Ahead of him lay the coast of the land. Just imagine. <laughs> <laughs>
and a bucket to the circle for 26. The 27th symphony can look after itself. <laughs> Number 28 uses a motif of milk. 29 is tarter even than 7. 30 is so groovy you might die. <laughs> when the idea for his 31st symphony popped into Binder's brain, he was aboard a great steamship. Its sinking is mourned in the 32nd. 33 was commissioned by Stalin. The score for Symphony No. 34, the Symphony of Buttons, calls for several buttons and a hurdy-gurdy. 35 is mostly silent, or at least so quiet one strains one's ears to hear a damn thing. Binder's favourite was the 36th. The 37th lacks elegance. 38 is gaudy. 39 is the music of champions. 40 falls flat. 41 comes from outer space. The opening bars of Binder's 42nd are used as the theme to a piece of TV tosh. Symphony 43 has a certain relentless pigginess. Symphony 44 is birdie, not piggy. 45 is just grating. 46, Binder's longest symphony by far, frightens both birds and pigs. 47 is played in a ditch. 48 is all tinkly and twee. Contemplating the pippy splendour of his 49th and final symphony, Binder was heard to remark that it reminded him of the burning cities he had skulked in as an orphan child. I had intended for the, the songs that I've uh, put together for, for this. I, I, I did intend for this to the, be the first time that anybody had heard any of them. But I lost my nerve, so I thought I'd better go test them out. And last Sunday, I went into the Downs, in an obscure part of the Downs, to a, a folk session that is frequented by lots of Morris people. And if anybody's going to tell you what they really think about it, it's generally Morris dances. <laughs> anyway, this one went down quite well. So, this is On the Bonnie Bonnie Banks. Up and down 
and gamble about wearing coats of many hues wearing coats of many hues wearing coats of many hues oh the songs they sang the songs that they sang were as strange as strange could be I recall one that went this means nothing to me. <laughs> oh, Vienna. <laughs> All caked and painted were the cards, yellow, green and blue. But my true love's card was black as pitch, as black as the raven and crow, as black as the raven and crow. I stand in the hills in an icy gale, wondering where will my true love go? Green grow the rushes on those bonny about the controversy about furs and frues. All right, okay, I will. Get Carter! <laughs> that was my instruction that morning from the overseer. But there were so many carters passing along the lane, driving their carts to or back from the market square in the village, that I had no idea which carter to get. Nor did I have a clue what to do with the carter when I got him, other than to take him to the overseer. So I hid behind a splurge of lupins beside the lane, lying in wait for a carter weedy enough for me to overpower. I realised I may have to wait quite some time, for all the carters passing by were big burly types who would swap me aside with their fists and forearms. My name is Versailles-Jetherix and I am puny. <laughs> My instruction was to get a carter, not their cart, but I couldn't just leave a carterless cart abandoned in the lane. It would attract remark, and remark could lead to pursuit, and pursuit to capture, and capture to blows and bruises and blood. When getting my carter, I would have to shove their cart off the lane and conceal it behind a splurge of lupins, or better, a hedge where it would go unremarked. This was going to prove more difficult than I thought. The sun was high and searing when at last along the lane came toiling a weedy-looking carter, pulling a creaky old cart piled high with what I took to be turnips. Fortunate for me that this was a land without horses, or indeed pack animals of any description, for that saved me an additional quandary. I had only to get a carter and hide a cart, not hide a horse or donkey into the bargain. I sprang out into the lane in front of the weedy carter. Halt! I cried. The carter, startled, pulled from his cummerbund a firearm, cocked it and pointed it at my head. Reluctantly I had to let him pass and I scuttled back behind the splurge of lupins. The next few passing carters were of the big and burly type, so I dared not spring out in front of any of them. 
I hid and hummed quietly and smoked and popped open a can of squelcho to quench my thirst. Towards noon there was a lull in cart traffic, so I took the opportunity to practice my springing, leaping out into the lane and waving my arms in an alarming manner, shouting my head off. In doing so, I spilled some of my squelcho, but the little puddle it formed was soon lapped up by a dog. This dog appeared to be a dog without a master, and I wondered if it might be a helpful ally in my mission to get a carter. If I sent it bounding out from behind the splurge of lupins, yapping, it might disconcert a weedy dog-frightened carter long enough for me to get him and shove his cart out of sight. I beckoned to the dog. I have a way with animals. I inspire pathetic devotion in dogs, cats, squirrels, even geese and leaf-cutter ants, just by my beckoning manoeuvre, a sort of gentle sweeping of the arm accompanied by intricate hand movements and a whispered incantation. Sure enough, the masterless dog followed me to my place of concealment behind the splurge of lupins. Immediately, I set about training it to yap at a carter. For this purpose, I fashioned a sort of makeshift cart out of the empty squelcho can and some twigs and lupin petals. It didn't look much like a cart, but I mimed pulling it and pushing it in a straight line as if along the lane, to represent which I scored a groove in the patch of ground behind the splurge of lupins with the heel of my winkle picker. The dog gazed at me adoringly. All of this took quite some time, and I quite neglected to keep an eye out for passing carters. Indeed, several weedy specimens I could have overpowered, even without the dog, went to trundling their carts along the lane, as I learned later when reviewing the CCTV footage back at the depot. The overseer was not best pleased. He ranted at me while the dog cowered behind a filing cabinet. He called me a nitwit and a knave and several other choice words. I'd been given a simple task to get Carter, and instead I was found faffing about behind a splurge of lupins with a dog and an empty can of squelcho and some twigs and petals. I was not only puny, I was hopeless and incompetent. Still, the overseer was willing to give me one more chance. He told me to report to him the next morning for a new instruction. Will do, I piped up, showing enthusiasm. Can I bring the dog? I asked. He shook his fist in my face and told me to be gone. The next morning I turned up bright and early at the depot, dog in tow. The overseer was rummaging through paperwork and barely glanced at me. I wondered if he wanted me to get Carter again. But no. Bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia, he shouted. Any long-term Hooting Yard listeners will remember that before Frank settled on the Caucasian lullaby as the sonic backdrop to the great work, um, he did go through a period of experimenting with other songs and tunes. Um, one, uh, Vril, one by Vril, yeah. and this one, which I will sing again unaccompanied. Broad is the road that leads to death And thousands walk together there But wisdom shows 
a narrow path with here and there a traveler. Deny thyself, take up thy cross is thy Redeemer's great command. Nature must hold her gold but dross ere she would see this heavenly land. The fearful soul that tires and faints and walks the ways of God no more is but esteemed almost a saint and makes his own destruction sure. Lord, we are vile, conceived in sin and born unholy and unclean, sprung from the man who's guilty born corrupts his race and taints us all. Lord, let not all my hopes be vain. Create my heart entirely new, which hypocrites could ne'er attain, or false apostates never knew. Wyndham. Thank you very much. We began the first half with poetry instead of prose, and I'm going to do the same with the second half, but not my own poetry. Warning by Jenny Joseph is apparently Britain's best-loved post-war poet. It's said to be life-affirming. Ha! Who needs life to be affirmed when, as Dr Malcolm said, and as we all know, life will find a way. Anyway, let's take a look at the poem, shall we? And uh, could I have a volunteer from the audience to um, perhaps read it? Yes, please, come up. And your name is? Pansy Cradle Duke. Pansy Cradle Duke, if you'd like to stand here. And here's the, here's the words which you haven't seen before. Um, so if you could read the poem for us. When I am an old woman, I shall wear purple. Well, I'm not a woman, but I am old, and I'm not wearing purple. I'm not Eric Satie, for God's sake. With a red hat which doesn't go and doesn't suit me. The only people who habitually wear red hats are cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church. At the time of writing, women, whether old or young, are not allowed to become priests, let alone cardinals. So there's some kind of cognitive dissonance going on here. And I shall spend my pension on brandy and summer gloves and satin sandals and say we've no money for butter. This demonstrates a complete misunderstanding of Bismarck's domestic policy in late 19th century Germany. It was guns before butter, not brandy and gloves and footwear. What sort of nation-state can you expect to build if everybody totters around in a stupor brought on by spirituous liquor decked out like the most foolish of new romantics? 
I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired. Actually, that's fair enough. That line can stand, but only that one. <laughs> <side line. laughs> and gobble up samples in shops and press alarm bells and run my stick along the public railings and make up for the sobriety of my youth. No, you bloody well won't, because you're slumped on the pavement, or preferably in the gutter, remember? You're far too tired to get up and start charging around the place, as described here, because your tiny brain is exhausted from all that catch-up reading you've had to do to correct your misunderstanding of German history. I shall go out in my slippers in the rain, and pick flowers in other people's gardens and learn to spit. Apart from Kate Winslet in Titanic, <coughs> nobody learns to spit. You just spit. <laughs> in any case, whether learned or innate, if you spit and steal, you'll get an asbo, and so you should. Carry on and you'll be banged up in a large concrete building with iron bars on the windows and made to sew mail bags until you die, whereupon you'll be buried in an unmarked grave over which quicklime will be poured to hasten your dissolution. I may have an outmoded view of prison conditions, but a man can dream. You can wear terrible shirts and grow more fat. Oh, all of a sudden this is about me. <laughs> it's all very well casting aspersions upon my majestic dress sense, etc., from behind prison walls, but I'm not the one forced to wear a rough sackcloth uniform covered in arrows and withering away on a bread-and-water diet. And eat three pounds of sausages at a go. Yes, thank you. I'll eat as many sausages as I like. That line can stand. Or only, only bread and pickle for a week. You don't understand German history and you don't listen. I have no idea where you get the idea that there might be pickles on the menu. See above. Bread and water, not bread and pickle. And hoard pens and pencils and beer mats and things in boxes. Stationery is fine, but you won't need a beer mat for your rusty beaker of water. And what in heaven's name are these things in boxes? Lovecraftian monsters with suckers and antennae. You've got another thing coming if you think they'll stay happily boxed up. As soon as you turn your back, they'll burst from their confines and latch onto your throat and drain the lifeblood from you, what's left of it. And they'll make an absolutely terrifying noise while they do so. <laughs> But now we must have clothes that keep us dry and pay our rent and not swear in the street and set a good example for the children. Pure wishful thinking, given that you're sprawled on the cold stone floor of your prison cell with a hideous alien being that defies all known organic lineaments wrapped around your neck, sucking your blood and slowly, slowly crushing the last breath out of you. We must have friends to dinner and read the papers. By the papers, I assume you mean those academic papers about Bismarck that you ought to have been reading when you still had the chance. Too late. Too late. But maybe I ought to practice a little now? No, 
<laughs> so people who know me are not too shocked and surprised when suddenly I am old and start to wear purple. Yeah, yeah, and I'm Eric Sassy. Get a grip, for God's sake. <laughs> Thus, we're left with two lines of clarity from all this delusional twaddle. I shall sit down on the pavement when I'm tired and eat three pounds of sausages <laughs> at a go. And even that can be cut to make it more punchy. I shall sit down and eat sausages. Now that's a poem the nation can be proud of. <laughs> Cold and dark is this awful night as I shiver in my shed. Forsaken me and deprived me of my bed. I have no pies, no pastries to shovel in my gob. The Lord, He has forsaken me. All I can do is sob. I weep in my allotment shed, I weep until the dawn. I curse the very buttercups upon the village lawn. forsaken me and I am so forlorn I wail and gnash my rotting teeth that I was ever born My name is Leo Sayer I'm short with frizzy hair I sit here in my wooden shed upon my wooden chair and I curse the fact that I share my name with a singer Hop, pop, pop and then I spill my flask of boiling tea into my lap, hear me cry. Oh, the Lord, he has forsaken me, all I can do is whine. Oh, Lord God Almighty, please send me a sign. Please stop people thinking I'm the singer Leo S. Small of stature minstrel who got me in this mess. Well, he fled to the antipodes, or so I have been told. He moved across the globe because his records undersold. Well, it seems the Lord forsook him too, but that is only right. I wail and sob within my shed on this dark and awful night. Way 
chimneys scrape the sky all alone I am waiting just to wave at you as you pass by how I would And adore you How you make My heart Beat light But I am filled with Melancholy On this cold And lonely Across the street I watch your window And I see Your light As it turns on You'll find the note That I wrote you And I wonder if you will cry, now I am gone Go and look In your wardrobe Where my cold and lifeless body lies I'm just a ghost Here in the smoke, dear And I wait to blow you one last kiss goodbye I'm just a ghost Here in the smoke, dear And I wait to blow you one last kiss And I wait to blow you one last kiss goodbye. Lend me your ear while I call you a fool. You were kissed by a witch one night in the wood. Well, you thought it was a witch, but actually it was the woo-hoo-hoody-woo woman. Broadly similar to, but not exactly a witch. She kissed you there in the wood in the night, and then she turned into a crow and flew away. You did not see where to, for it was so dark in the wood. 
What were you doing there so late? You ought to have been tucked up in bed in your crumbling chamber on the topmost floor of Sludge Hall. But for reasons known only to yourself, you'd set your alarm clock for half past two in the morning, and you woke and dressed in gaudy raiment and stalked down the servant's staircase and out of the pantry door and along the lane, and when you reached the edge of the wood you pressed on, not stopping, though the trees grew denser and denser, until you met with the woo-hoo-hoody-woo woman. She kissed you and turned into a crow, but you were not transformed. You stayed just as you were, a fool, in the middle of the wood, in the middle of the night. Did you expect that you too would become a crow or some other bird, a linnet or a partridge? And had you done so, what then? Did you think you could beat your wings and fly and follow what you thought was a witch to where she perched in the form of a crow upon the sturdy branch of an oak tree? Remember that many of the trees in the wood are smeared with bird lime, and you might have become stuck, waiting helplessly for dawn to break and for the hunting men to come and break your neck and stuff you into a sack. You need have no fear that such a fate will befall the woo-hoo-hoody-woo woman, for long before morning she will transform herself again, from a crow into a squirrel or a gnat, and she will have no trouble unsticking herself from the bird line, for she will use her powers. Perhaps you thought that with one kiss from her, you would be granted those powers. Fool! Fool! That's not how it works, and never has been, and you would know that if you had read your storybooks carefully. As it is, you are left alone in the wood in the dark, kissed but untransformed, if anything more foolish than you'd been before. What then, you wondered, did the kiss portend? And why had the witch, in truth the woo-hoo-hoody-woo woman, turned into a crow and flown away from you? Did she want you to seek her, to blunder about in the dark wood trying to find her perch? to clamber up the trunk of the oak and join her there in your foolish, still human form? Or did she intend that you turn back once kissed, turn back and trudge all along the lane back to Sludge Hall, to climb back up the stairs and into your upper chamber and into your bed and fall asleep and remember nothing? Being a fool, you do not know which choice to make, so you simply stand there in the middle of the wood. Suddenly above, shifting clouds reveal the moon, the cold-hearted orb that rules the night. Through a gap in the dense leafage of oaks and sycamores and pines, a shaft of silver light beams down upon you. It lights up the mark on your forehead, the crimson mark where you were kissed by the woo-hoo-hoody-woo woman. You will not see it until morning, when... Hearing the boots of the hunting men crunching through the duff, you gather what poor wits you have. You walk out of the wood, not back to Sludge Hall, but out the other side, towards the pond. At the pond, you stoop to see your reflection in the water. You see the head of a fool bearing the mark of the woo-hoo-hoody-woo woman. It is ineradicable. And swans paddle across the pond towards you. Dozens of swans. The mark on your forehead begins to glow. It grows hot until it is burning bright and you see it reflected in the eyes of the swans. They surround you now, white and silent, as you slump to your knees at the edge of the pond. They will never let you leave them. 
You belong to them now. They worship you with the fanaticism only swans are capable of. You are still a fool, but of a new uncanny type. And as the swans gaze at you, unblinking, you hear the cawing of a crow somewhere in the sky above, and you feel a sharp pang in your forehead where you were kissed by the woohoo hoodie woo woman at night in the wood. I had a hammer. I hammered in the morning. I hammered in the evening all over this land. I hammered out danger. I hammered out a warning. I hammered out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. They should have seen that coming. As I said, before I hammered the love out of them, I hammered out a warning. It was hardly my fault if they thought I was just larking about. Personally, if I'd seen one of my siblings roaring towards me at dusk, armed with a hammer, I'd have made a run for it. Particularly when it was clear I'd been hammering things all day, all over this land. Anyway, I had a good night's sleep, and the next day I continued hammering. There was not much left to hammer in this land, so I crossed the border. I hammered the fence and the border guards, and then I had a happy day hammering everything that lay in my path in this new country. Bang, bang, bang. That was me with the occasional dull thump if I hammered something soft and squishy. <laughs> I didn't discriminate. If I saw it, I hammered it. It really was as simple as that. <laughs> but then I was fortunate to have such a good hammer. When my hammering was still in the planning stages, it was suggested to me that I should obtain a silver hammer from Maxwell. <laughs> sure, I said. I actually said sure, like a character in a bad play from the interwar years. But I was right to do so. Maxwell's silver hammer was fashionable enough in its time, but the kind of hammering I intended to do required something sturdier, a real thumper. So I got my hammer from Huberman's. I was so pleased with it that I hammered my way out of the shop and didn't stop hammering until I got home. It was the following day that I started to hammer all over this land. Then, the day after that, I hammered my way halfway across the neighbouring land. It was much bigger and much more densely packed with people and things, so I had a lot more hammering to do than in my own land. But eventually, I got to the frontier, having hammered pretty much everything in sight. As I nestled down for the night in a border chalet, I inspected my hammer, and was pleased to see that it was almost as good as new. There were a couple of scuff marks and quite a lot of blood, but otherwise it looked as if it would serve me well for as long as I continued hammering all over as many lands as I descended upon, like an angel of death, with my hammer. <laughs> And I think that's it.